Good evening. It's good to be with you. It's an appropriate last uh, line to what we've been considering. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. This is what God does. And this is uh, part of our calling as Christians is to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it is our confidence, like Pastor prayed, that even as we must be sure to be working out our own salvation, it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. And this is his good pleasure. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, our sanctification. If we would call a house without any foundation dangerous, we might call a foundation without any house useless. It's great when we get the foundation laid, but we need to finish the house for us to be able to live in the house. Recently, uh, some of you may know, we had a bathroom going in in our house. It was interesting to kind of watch the process and see where the uh, drain lines were going to go and the water was going to go and there was some chainsaw in the in the basement and things like that, cutting through walls, tearing out uh, drywall and various things like that. And then eventually the walls went back in really quick in the new place and uh, the electric got roughed in and everything was looking really rough, but you could see it going in the right direction. But what needs to happen once all of the electric is roughed in and the walls are back up? There's just a hole in the ground. There's no toilet on there. There's no sink. The water lines may be in place, but you need a sink, you need a bathroom, you need a door, you need the drywall, you need the paint. All of these things need to be finished for it to be useful. Some of you may be shaking your head and saying, oh, we could rough it. Uh, But if it's going to be a proper bathroom, all of this needs to be finished. You need to go on to a fully finished bathroom, a fully finished house for it to be what it ought to be. That can serve as a kind of uh, illustration to what Paul is has been writing to this church in Thessalonica. He was with them for a brief time on one of his missionary journeys, and he got chased off. And likely a few weeks later, he's writing back to them, concerned that their faith not be shaken up and that they wouldn't be uh, knocked off from the course that he knew that they were on. He knew that they had started well. They had laid a good foundation for their faith. But they needed to go on. And he tells them at the beginning of chapter 4, Therefore, we request and exhort you that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, this was the foundation that he had laid, that you excel still more. You need to abound in this. You need to keep going. And what he's dealing with in particular, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, This is the will of God. Your sanctification, this is the blueprint that he wants them to follow. You must pursue holiness. You must go on and continue in what God has started in your life. God had done a good work and brought them to life. And they had already shown signs of true faith and true Christian love and true Christian hope about the future. And they needed to keep going. They needed to become excellent in this. They needed to abound in this fruit. This is the path of sanctification. And item number one that Paul sees as the biggest danger for them is sexual immorality in Thessalonica. 
This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We've used the image several times in considering this letter. I've often thought of this massive oak tree in our backyard. If you come over to our house, uh, particularly this fall, maybe, uh, maybe bring your hard hat because it will rain acorns on the porch. Uh, because this tree is huge and it reaches everywhere over most of the yard. And I'm always curious which roots that I see in the nether parts of the yard are from that tree. Because it, with how big it is, it has to go everywhere. But what is the strength of that tree? That tree has grown strong and sturdy as its roots have gone deep. It has needed uh, all of the, the underground strength in order to stand firm against the wind that would blow against it. And it's the same for us in our faith. We must grow in order to be strengthened in our faith. We must be growing. And Paul sees in this pagan Roman city the winds, you could say, of sexual immorality that are going to be blowing around these people who have just recently been converted, perhaps some of them out of pagan idolatry and immorality. These forces are going to come back against their faith. And the only way in which they will be able to withstand all of this pressure is by continually growing, excelling in their Christian life. And it's for that reason we continue under the title, An Excellent Christian Lifestyle. We've considered uh, Paul's instruction to them in verses 1 and 2 and how this is really a choice of the will. He's directing this instruction, this exhortation to their will. He's exhorting them, requesting them, calling them to action. And here we feel this, this uh, you could call it a tension that's present throughout the New Testament that work out your own salvation for it is God who works in you both to will and do of your good pleasure. This is ultimately a work of God in our hearts, but we must also be engaged. And Paul is addressing them to engage. And it's really this walk of the Christian life, this excelling in holiness, is based on pretty non-negotiable, fundamental Christian principles that Paul had taught them. We exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as they were actually doing. This is kind of an extension of their obedience and the beginning of their Christian faith. And he tells them to excel still more. And this, of course, is in accordance with what Jesus himself commanded as he sent out the disciples to evangelize and to disciple. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded. He's seeking to raise these Uh, new converts up in the faith and to present them mature in Christ when Christ returns. For this is God's will, your sanctification, your holiness. We're speaking about progressive sanctification. That is that you steer clear from sexual immorality. We considered last week that this consists of self-mastery and self-knowledge, that each of you know how, that you know, you become proficient at how to possess your own vessel, your own body, all of your own faculties that may be prone to sexual immorality, how to, how to own your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not like those who are enslaved to their lusts, 
in lustful passion, Paul says, like the Gentiles who do not know God, those who have no choice but to serve themselves because they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. And then we come to Paul's final uh, argument that he's setting up in order to exhort this new church to pursue sanctification. In verse 6, and then, Lord willing, we'll consider a number of the the motives that he gives the church. Uh, Rather, in verse 6, he's giving another explanation of what he means, and then he turns to, to... reasons why they ought to do this, arguments to convince them to do this. Verse 6, and we'll read down through the end of our text, verse 8, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If sanctification requires purposeful abstinence from sexual sin, and it includes self-knowledge and self-mastery, sanctification also concerns relationships and righteous relationship between God and Christian brothers, God and neighbor. Paul says in verse 6, as his final reason, to not transgress and to not exploit in this matter his brother. The word defraud could be translated exploit. But first, he says to not transgress. What What is it to transgress? It's to wrong someone, to sin against them, specifically with the idea of stepping over a boundary. Paul's not speaking of sin here in terms of perversion or twistedness like he does elsewhere, or even about impurity or the defilement of sin. He's talking about a crossing over of a boundary, specifically a boundary that God has set, a boundary established by God. Sin, of course, any sin, always puts us directly before God. And certainly this word transgression means to overstep God's boundaries and sin against God, since God is the one who sets the boundaries for, in context, human sexuality. So that no man transgress, and there's not an object immediately, so I believe it's appropriate to understand transgress against God, but then specifically he does eventually say against a brother. Also in this matter, our transgression would be against a brother or a sister in Christ, against a person. Sin is always an offense against God, right? No matter what it is. But also, our sin is often against other people, and our sin often destroys other people. It oversteps definite boundaries that we ought not to transgress with people, too. And in the case of sexual morality, there is one boundary that God has set. Yes, it's a transgression against God, but it's also against people to overstep the boundary of, what is the boundary? Marriage. That's the boundary for human sexuality. So he uses the the word transgress. To not transgress and to not exploit 
What is he speaking about in exploiting or defrauding his brother? Certainly, uh, sexual exploitation. We must never take advantage of another person in that way. This word defraud kind of has the connotation of, of greedy extortion, arrogant extortion, like the people may have had in mind they may have been familiar with greedy tax collectors who would come and charge them exorbitant fees. Why? Just because they could. And they knew the people couldn't do anything about it. And they could ruin them if they didn't pay up. They were greedy. They were arrogant. And they were doing it just because they could. This word breathes of, of arrogance and indifference to the suffering of others. It's greedy. It's self-exalting, self-satisfied. It's really repugnant behavior. It's a dirty word, defraud, here. To conduct yourself toward others in the passion of your lust is to treat God and your neighbor with this kind of heart. But this word defraud or exploit often is also used with the idea of, connected to the idea of the ignorance of the other person. Paul often uses this word in terms of deceit. He writes to the Corinthians and says, clever man that I am, I took you in by deceit. And he's, of course, speaking ironically and saying, I never defrauded any of you by deceiving you. And what, what are we speaking about maybe when you were a kid, if you're an older sibling especially, and you pulled out your piggy bank and you pulled out all your nickels and you convinced your younger sibling that you would very graciously give him all of the nickels for all of his dimes because... The nickels look more like quarters, and they're bigger, right? So why don't we just trade all of these coins? You're, you're exploiting the ignorance of your younger sibling, and maybe, maybe you're a, a nicer older sibling than that. I must confess that I'm sure I at least thought that if I did not do that. But here in the context of immorality, the fact is, Immorality does often happen in secret and in the, the presence of ignorance of many other people. Affairs are hidden. Pornography is viewed in private. We lust in our minds where no one else can see except God. Or maybe in certain cases, people are, are drawn into improper relationships through deceit or manipulation when they're really kind of ignorant of what really is fully going on. We must never defraud or exploit others, especially within the church. The point is, it doesn't matter what the other person knows or doesn't know. What does the world say the, the acceptable level of morality is, maybe consent? It doesn't matter what the other person knows. We must be pure before God's eyes, all the way to the level of our hearts. That's the seriousness of what Paul is saying. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. One of the saddest illustrations of this, I believe, in Scripture is David with Bathsheba. He transgressed. He stepped over the boundary, and he exploited in many ways. First of all, in, in Psalm 51, when David finally confesses, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He sinned against God. He transgressed God's law. That was a sin against God, first and foremost. But he transgressed against Bathsheba too, didn't he? And he exploited 
a woman who was his subject and really who was the helper that God had given to one of David's mighty men, Uriah. David saw her. He lusted after her. He inquired about her. And even when he was told, isn't this the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He ignored that and he pursued that track. He defrauded. But not only Bathsheba, Uriah too. His subject, one who had laid out his life for him, his loyal soldier, a God-fearing convert who loved David and served him faithfully. But who else did David defraud and transgress against? The name of Bathsheba's father was Eliam, and he was another of David's mighty men. He sinned against the father of that woman. He sinned against Ahithophel, his counselor, the grandfather of Bathsheba certainly against Uriah's whole family. And, of course, to all the people in the land of Israel, he was a terrible example. To all of these people who were expected to live in in covenant with their wives. I've heard it said that David took and took and took all the women that he ever wanted in his life. And then when this opportunity presented itself, he took again. And it totally shattered his dignity, his rule, his family, his relationship with God, his relationship with his subjects. He exploited Bathsheba and defrauded everyone connected with her in in many, many heartbreaking ways. And Paul is saying here, you need to be pursuing sanctification and moral purity so that you don't do any of these things, let alone all of them, not any of these things, not even in your mind. So are you in right relationship with God in this matter? And are you in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in this matter? God has set very clear boundaries that we must observe and not cross over. In our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. And God has said marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled. The boundary is marriage. And even within marriage, the call is to to true self-sacrificial love. Not even there in lustful, uh, selfish consumerism, right? So towards God, are you right in this way? And towards your neighbor, and especially neighbors at church, brothers and sisters in Christ, is your relationship with them upright and pure? Is there, is there any area of your life when you're taking something that doesn't belong to you? It's a question for all of us. And it's an urgent matter regarding your strength as a Christian to maintain your faith in an immoral world. That's the bigger picture of what Paul is saying. This is going to undermine your faith. It's going to rot the roots. And even more than just you, It's important to our strength as a church and our witness as a church to be built up into maturity because we're all a part of that. Is there any sin in this regard that you need to turn from and that you need forgiveness for in order to continue progressing to spiritual maturity? That's what Paul is dealing with. Sanctification requires purposeful avoidance of sexual sin in action, in thought, in word. Sanctification includes knowing yourself and knowing 
how to, how to exercise self-control with the help of the Spirit. And sanctification really has to deal in the realm of relationships, your relationship with God, your relationship with other people. And we need to be right with God about this if we're going to grow to Christian maturity. But then, in Paul's warning against sexual immorality, he does add three arguments. What, what reasons could help us in approaching this matter of pursuing sanctification and moral purity? What could help us approach this seriously? Well, immoral, immorality is, is really serious for all of us because it's ultimately about you and God. That's what he says first. That no man transgress, verse 6, and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Paul takes that out of the realm of just you and other people. It's about you and God. He says because, he's giving an explanation that should really loom large in everybody's mind. An explanation for why to avoid immorality. Because the Lord is the avenger. God is the justice giver. He is the punisher of evil. You could say God is the special advocate of the victim of what we're talking about here. In all these things, in every matter of sexual transgression, sexual exploitation, God is the, you could say, special advocate of the victim in every case of sexual sin. And he will not let any of that arrogance, any of that lust, any of that malice, he won't let it go. He will punish it in perfect and full justice. This is the justice of God. And that's certainly true for every sinner outside of Christ. When you look at the world, when you read the news, God will deal with that. But who is Paul writing to? He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. This is certainly a warning, too, for those who profess to be Christians but aren't practicing repentance and really aren't true believers. This is a warning and a call to confess Christ. But it's also a warning to true Christians because that's who Paul keeps referring to. Finally then, brethren, brethren, brethren. True Christians are in danger of the snare of this sin. Certainly these believers in Thessalonica were. They were saved out of it, but they're still living in the city. This is Rome. And how much better is it for us today? Not that much. There's a danger for even the people of God that we would get caught in this. And we need to recognize that this passage isn't just for the world. This isn't just for us to feel outraged about the things going on out there. We, we really need to turn the attention on ourselves and on our own hearts and be honest about what's going on in our hearts. We need to heed this warning. But why is Paul doing this? Well, he's bringing Christians directly into contact with God, the judge of sin. And maybe that strikes you as a bit odd. Why, why might he do this? Well, perhaps it's because Paul knows that in a, in a debauched culture like the Roman life of Thessalonica, it's going to be easy for Christians there to make the culture their standard of morality, right? The benchmark of how they make their moral decisions. You know, if there's, if there's temple prostitution, that's really just rampant in the temple district, you know, at least I'm not a prostitute anymore. 
I might look at them and lust after them, but at least I don't commit the act with them anymore. Praise God. Or if there's all these you know, Roman festivals full of perversion on these pagan holidays, worshiping these idols, well, at least I'm out of that. It's so easy to do this, to take what really is terrible public immorality and make that our object of attention and our object of self-satisfaction. We, we put ourselves just out of reach of the world, of being judged by the world. But in reality, we're, we're participating in immorality light. That's maybe how we think of it. Some acceptable version, something acceptable to us because we're measuring ourselves against people who aren't saved, right? But Paul, he just, he blows that out of the water here because immorality isn't an issue of you and the culture. Of course, it affects your witness, but immorality is ultimately about you and God. It's a matter of how God views you. He's holy. He's perfect. He is not only sinless, he's righteous in every conceivable way. He's the one whose estimation of you matters. It doesn't matter if the world doesn't judge you for the way that you think and act. It doesn't matter if you get away with something and nobody finds out. Immorality isn't just about you and the person you sin against or you and the screen that you look at. It's about you and God. And God is the justice giver. He's the evil punisher, the revenge taker in every matter of sexual immorality. And maybe you're still thinking, well, how do we make sense of this? If God has paid my sin in full, God can still bring consequences of sin, can't he? This isn't punishment. This is discipline. God has punished sin in Christ, but we still ought to fear the Lord because he can bring whatever consequences into our lives that he chooses. God's children, of course, won't continue in willful unrepentant sin. But if they get snared in it, God knows how to go get them and reach them and bring them back. Maybe you'd lose respect. Maybe you'd lose your marriage. Maybe you'd lose your job or lose your health. These are all very easy, direct, easy to understand consequences. God can do any of that or all of that. Even for believers. And of course, that is God's discipline because he loves his people. But God does discipline, and we ought to fear him. So if you need help steering clear of sexual immorality, I believe that's what Paul is doing. He's giving them a, kind of an inducement to, to stay away from it. Start here. God's, God's desire, you could say God's heart, is to preserve the wonder of human sexuality for marriage. And that's exactly why he will judge those who pervert it. Because they're breaking and they're twisting and defacing some, something that God says is good. We quoted that verse from Hebrews. Marriage is to be held in honor and the marriage bed undefiled. And God himself is the one who will get revenge if you don't stick to that. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's evaluating everything at all times. He even knows the motives of our hearts, certainly the thoughts of our hearts, and he will not leave sin unpunished. He will certainly severely punish all sin for those who are outside of Christ. 
But maybe if you're in Christ and you just feel trapped and ashamed, don't forget that Christ has broken the power of even that sin over you. Turn your eyes on him. Ask the Lord to make him precious to you. That's been my prayer tonight. Keep looking to the cross. This is a sin that's part of what's been judged. It has been judged. It has been severely punished already in Jesus Christ. Such that, like Paul says in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a sin for which Christ died, for which he was forsaken by his Father, that he had experienced eternal fellowship and bliss with. He had never sinned. He was made sin, that sin for you. And he received the full fury of God's wrath against your sin on him. That's how God judged that sin, that you keep indulging it, if that's you. Start there. That will, that will rend the heart of every true believer. And that will make you desire Christ and cry out to him and seek forgiveness. And if you confess your sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This was a solemn part, Paul goes on to say, of what he's been discipling the church about. Something that no doubt he had seen. He had seen the firsthand danger of. And he goes on to warn them this way. For the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This was evidently part of what he was able to teach them while he was there. People probably didn't know this. They weren't raised in a, in a culture that had laws based on, you know, maybe we would say Judeo-Christian values in our country that outlaw divorce, outlaw this and outlaw that. That wasn't, that wasn't part of Rome. These people didn't grow up in that kind of, under that kind of influence. And they needed taught this, maybe for the first time. That, what you're doing, that's actually wrong. And Paul told them, and when God finally awakened these people to their, to their frightful situation before him, all of the condemnation that they deserved, and that they got a sense that God is the avenger in all of these things, that was a powerful thing for them to learn. And Paul was solemnly warning them. No doubt the, the warning, the idea here is the, the warning of firsthand personal experience. One thing my father would often say when we were growing up, when we were getting near to doing something that would not seriously maim us, but uh, hurt us, you know, we're at the edge of, you know, we're jumping on the couch and we're probably going to fall off the couch and whack our heads. My father would say, uh, he'll only do it once. Sometimes the best teacher is personal experience, right? And no matter how many times you tell a kid that it's going to be dangerous and he's going to hurt himself until he actually whacks his head, He's not going to be convinced. Paul is solemnly warning them. Not that he himself had been engaged in this, but he's seen God the avenger in all these things. And he wouldn't wish that on anybody that he loves. It's a solemn warning. He's sober. They had seen it. They knew. They knew the consequences of failing to believe that God is the avenger in all of these things. And they were urgent. But not only is, is sanctification 
or excuse me, immorality about you and God, Paul goes on to add a further argument and say, sanctification really is, is inseparable from salvation. He says in verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, for the sense of the word that he's using here. You see, Paul says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is he referring to? When God is calling people out of darkness into his own kingdom and glory, he's speaking about God effectually calling them to salvation. That's the the same sense that he's using back in chapter 4. God has not called us. When he saved you and brought you into his heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear beloved son. He didn't do that so you could go wallow around in the manure, right? How many times have you given your dog a bath and then immediately they go out and find, I remember my parents' dog did this, found a dead fish. It was like the only dead fish in the whole 13 acres she could have found and she rolled right on that thing. Or a pig. They get sprayed clean and what do they go to? They go to the mud. God did not call you for the purpose of impurity but in holiness. This is Paul's explanation for why this is such a serious matter to God. For, he says, for God has not called us. He's explaining why. God calls his people out of spiritual darkness and death into spiritual light and life for a purpose. God God puts spiritual life in dead sinners. He washes Filthy sinners makes them completely clean, not so they can go roll in the mud again. Why did he call them? But in sanctification. He calls people in order to make them holy like he is. That's the purpose of salvation. That's really the the realm in which we live now. So don't miss the fact that growth is the reason that you're saved. Progressive sanctification is part and parcel with your salvation. Are you attending to that? Are you giving attention to that? And I would ask you, has God ever failed in any of his purposes? Has God ever failed to accomplish anything he intended to do? No. And God intends to do this. This is what he has planned to do from eternity past. So if you refuse that, you ought to consider why. God chose his people to be holy and blameless before him. That's his purpose. And he's never failed. So if, as a a professing Christian, you're indifferent to the intention of God for your life, that you would be growing in holiness as a result of your being saved, you're on very shaky ground with your profession. You ought to give attention to what God intends to do in your life. It ought to be something you prioritize throughout your week something you pray about. May the Lord help us. But why is it that we would be on such shaky ground if we profess to be Christians but ignore God's purpose? Why is it so crucial that we all be pursuing sanctification and especially moral purity, even in our thoughts and our attitudes and our our private habits? Paul says, finally, because... Our part in sanctification really is a matter of fearing God. 
heeding God, obeying His word and His will. He says, so, therefore, because of the purpose of God in calling you to salvation, therefore, the one who is rejecting, it's ongoing, is what Paul emphasizes. The one who is rejecting this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. The person who refuses to acknowledge the validity of this moral standard, the one who denies it, who who counts it as nothing, is just declaring it invalid, he's really showing contempt for God rather than fear toward him. And that's really the opposite of the fear of God, is contempt for God and contempt for his words. I just ignore it. It's not even always rebellion. It's just like God's words are nothing. He who rejects this. Not man he is rejecting, Paul says. That person isn't dismissing Paul or Silas or Timothy or or any pastor or theologian or teacher or any human. That person might be saying, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. That moral standard is outdated. Nobody lives that way anymore. God hasn't judged me yet. Look at this successful person over here. The person who lives like that, whether they're saying it or just living it, they're dismissing someone, and it's not a human being. But God, but the God. They are actively rejecting and denying God himself. Paul is really solemnizing this whole teaching in the most most, uh, serious way, it seems, that he could. To reject God's plan for the purity of his people is to reject God himself. And he is the God who gives or is continually giving the Holy Spirit to his people. So the person who who shows contempt for God and his words and his purposes is actively ignoring the one who is actively blessing you if you have the Holy Spirit in you. He is the God who is giving his Holy Spirit to you. God is, if you're in Christ, God is right now giving his Holy Spirit to you. And there is tremendous blessing in that. That's one of the highest blessings of our salvation, that God gives his Spirit and continually gives his Spirit to indwell a believer. And if that's a tremendous blessing of salvation, then it's a tremendous folly of sin to trample on that gift by ignoring God and grieving the Holy Spirit of God who is within you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. The idea of it is escape it, vanish, run away, get away from it with everything you have. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In a world that's really rampant in sin, may the Lord help us to steer clear, to abstain, to stay far away from sexual immorality. 
with, with, with zeal for his pleasure and his glory in our lives, certainly for our good, but because we know that sanctification is his purpose for us, that a holy life is a testimony to his holiness and his claim on our lives. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in holiness, and, and being set apart from sin to God for his use. Especially in this lost and depraved world that you abstain from sexual immorality. The devil knows the power of this sin. The devil knows the effectiveness, I believe, of, of the counterfeits that he has filled the world with. He is a master deceiver. He walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he's devoured many with this hook. May the Lord deliver us from the enemy of our soul, from the corruption that's still inside of us that, that even lurches out to have this. And may the Lord keep us walking humbly before him. I, if this doesn't humble you and make you fearful of your own flesh, may the Lord help us to, to depend on him. If nothing else, if this isn't, I hope it's a warning, I hope it's an encouragement but may it also cause us to cast ourselves on the Lord because we need his help. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I would urge you, in the words of Hebrews, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is God's will for us, and may, may he help us to walk in it. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a very plain warning in this text. Help us to heed it. Even tonight as we go, just being under your word doesn't automatically make us somehow immune to sin. Help us to consider your word humbly and seriously and, in, and prayerfully to seek with your strength to abstain from every form of sexual morality that really is all around us and pressing in. We feel our own weakness and we ask for your help. We do ask that you would make Jesus Christ precious to us. Help us to turn our eyes on him. And even as there's not one of us who's without sin. May we come back to you for forgiveness. You are a forgiving God and you're gracious. And you know how destructive our sin will be to us. And you call us away from it. Help us to flee to you and to turn our eyes on Christ and to love him more than any, any lust or any, any of these other things that we've considered. Help us to set our affections on things above where Christ is with you, Father. We need your help. Thank you for the word. Bless it to us, we pray in Christ's name.